This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Hussein. Director of the Leadership Center, Faculty Director of the McNulty Leadership Program. And I'm here with my friend and co-host, Anne Greenhall, who is the Deputy Director of the McNulty Leadership Program. Um, Our third colleague, Jeff Klein, may be joining us in due course. He is the Director of the McNulty Leadership Program. We want to remind everybody that the new episodes of our show premiere every Friday. 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. And of course, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. And very good to see you. Before we get into a dialogue with our really interesting guests, I'll introduce them in a minute. Um, I've got a kind of an odd but timely question. If uh, a person in a large corporation turns to you and says, uh, we're going to bring in a new chief executive in four or five months, Uh, What advice would you have for the outgoing CEO as he or she welcomes the new incoming CEO who might take over and let's make it four or five months? Oh, very good, Mike. And I think I know where you're going on this one. Well, here, I'm going to lean on some wise words shared with us on this show when we interviewed Stanley McChrystal. And he said, eyes on and hands off. So the outgoing CEO, especially if he or she remains chairman of the board, would be wise to be attentive, but not to meddle. Awesome. How about you, Mike? <laughs> You're, you've, written the, you've written the book called Boards That Lead. <laughs> what would you say? Uh, well, exactly what you would say. I like it. Stan McChrystal does have this great phrase, eyes on, hands off. And uh, we'll see how that plays out. But I think it's a good idea in general in succession. Uh, You want to keep an eye, help out if you can, but the person coming in is going to be different and it's a different era. And that just might slide into the topic uh, of the day as follows. We have with us the authors of a a new book. Listen carefully to the title, Working Backwards, Insights, Stories, and Secrets from Inside Amazon. And the authors are Colin Breyer and Bill Carr. And they're both with us now in the studio here to talk through uh, working backwards with Amazon as the central focus looking forward here. So Colin and Bill, welcome to the program. Great to have you here. The timing could not be better. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on, Mike and Ann. So let me begin with uh, Bill and then over to Colin. Uh, it's an interesting title. I, I really, um, It really caught my attention working backwards. Usually we want to look forwards. So Bill, working backwards, what's what's in that title? Well, first of all, um, as former operators and, and product owners, we, we, you know, we want to make sure we had a catchy title. So that was part of it. But no, uh, seriously, the um, working backwards is a term that's used infrequently inside Amazon and it refers to a way of thinking, which is to start with the customer and work backwards from there. And it also refers to a specific process which is designed to reinforce that practice and make it something that is a scalable, repeatable process throughout the company. 
and that's known as the working backwards PRFAQ process. And PR stands for press release, and FAQ stands for frequently asked questions. And briefly, what this means is that when Amazon develops any new product, the first step is to actually write a press release. And the reason why then it's called working backwards is normally that's the last step you do. And the reason to make it the first step is, but is that when you write a press release, you're really thinking about, okay, what about this product is going to really solve an interesting problem for customers in an elegant and exciting way and make them get out of their chairs to want to go buy it. And if you start there without constraining yourself and worrying about what your current technical skills what uh, potential business model problems you have to solve and start by just focusing on what would be great for customers. And then after you figure that out, then you work backwards from there to figure out like, well, what problems and solutions do I need to come up with in order to enable this fantastic product idea that I've come up with? So uh, Bill, I, I love the idea and I want to repeat the acronym PRFAQ and I want to repeat it because it's going to be on the final exam. <laughs> I don't forget that anybody, but I do want to reference the fact that we have, uh, and especially among some of our marketing faculty, a similar phrase, look at yourself from the outside in, see yourself through the eyes of the customer. Uh, you've said exactly that and so, in that sense, working backwards, let's start with what customers need and then figure out what we ought to do to serve them. I love it. Thank you, Annette. Colin, what would you add? Well, I would add how it's different is a lot of companies make decisions with what's called the skills forward approach. The companies look at what are our core competencies, what are our competitors doing, what are the opportunities and threats in the market. But the, the one word that is not really mentioned there is the word customer. So that's why Amazon inverted this process and started uh, from the customer and worked backwards from that. So it is it is a different way of thinking than a lot of other companies make decisions on what products to build or what markets to go into next. Great. So Colin and Bill, I'm just gonna add a couple, I guess, facts, and then we're gonna turn this over to Anne. Uh, you both worked uh, at Amazon for a number of years, you know, Jeff Bezos well, you know Andy Jassy well, who is going to become the new chief executive, I believe it's in the third quarter. And you work for a company that is now bigger in its market value than the GDP of almost all countries of the world. So last time I checked Amazon's market cap, the today's stock price times the number of shares in the market was somewhere around $1.7 trillion and the GDP of Russia and Brazil, not too far off from that. So an enormous enterprise, more than a million customers. So these ideas in particular working backwards uh, come from that enterprise. Uh, and as you write in your book, uh, this is guided how you've done it for many, many years. It's field tested, it has worked and look what it's created. So Anne, why don't you jump in? Oh, thank you, Mike and Bill and Colin. So nice to have this opportunity to speak with you. I'm going to pick up where Mike left off on your title, working backwards in your answer, starting with the customers and using the process that re reinforces this practice. You know, can you say a little bit more about how you start with the customers? And Mike, you mentioned a, a common phrase in the marketing department. I'm thinking of a specific one and that is customer centricity. 
and that was coined by Pete Fader. So in other words, not all customers are created equal. Can you talk about how Amazon thinks about customers? And maybe Bill, you know, again, I'll start with you and then Colin, love to hear you um, speak as well. So um, the, the wonderful thing about, so there's, um, you know, Jeff often talked about, there are really um, a couple different models that companies can take. One is called a fast follower model for a company. And in the fast follower model, you carefully look at what your competitors are building and you see what works for them. And then you run out and build a, a replica of that, that hopefully you make better, cheaper, faster, and you win based on that. And there are some notable companies that over time have made this work for them. One could argue that a lot of the early Microsoft products you know, followed this same model and that worked pretty well. Their market cap's pretty big last time I checked. So there's nothing wrong with that model. Amazon chose a different model, which is a customer centric model, which means instead of actually focusing on what your competitors are doing, you listen to customers. And the, the wonderful thing about doing that is that customers live in a state of constant dissatisfaction. That is, um, even today, where if you look at the, the how Amazon has changed since we got there, how it is today, when we first got there, you know, when you ordered a package from Amazon, you had to pay for shipping. It would take three to five days for it to show up. There was a limited selection of items. Today, there's this amazing selection of items and things get there within mm -hmm. two days. But even now, customers, of course, are still dissatisfied. Like they'd say, well, the two days is great, but how about one day or how about in an hour or how about in 15 minutes? Um, and uh, any defects in any form of your operation, uh, especially now in this, in this internet world, you get this very direct and unvarnished and sometimes very rough feedback from your customers about where you've screwed up. And if you focus on those things and look at those defects and actually drive them down to root cause and fix them uh, so that they don't recur, then it, this provides this continuous loop uh, of, of, of quality and, and steady improvement. So a lot of Amazon was influenced by the writing of Jim Collins and the flywheel approach. And in that <laughs> approach, what you do is you seek out Thing, um, attributes that are going to be durable and matter to customers for a long time. So an example of something that may be less, more ephemeral is like the quality of discovery of items. But one that, that may will never change is that customers will never say, all, um, all else equal, I'd rather shop at a store with higher prices and less selection and slower delivery speeds. And so literally from the time that, you know, Colin and I arrived in the late, you know, 1990s to the time we left, the e-commerce business at Amazon really just focused on those three things and continuously improved them uh, by listening to the customer and having to invent on their behalf in some cases. Um, I'll leave it there because Colin, Colin can tell, can add in even more. Colin, please. Well, I mean, I, th I think it was a great answer. And, you know, you know, if you're customer obsessed, they won't let you rest on your laurels. So they're always pushing you to do better, to invent new things. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, one of the questions we get is how did Amazon move into so many different things? And that is because customers are really demanding it. And, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of companies say want to be number one or two in a market and, you know, be satisfied with that. 
Amazon always is, has, you know, listening to customers and AWS is a great example. The, the new features that are developed in AWS are from corporate, uh, you know, small companies and large companies saying, hey, here's another part of my operation that I'm struggling with. And I think that you can help me with, uh, you know, with a cloud computing service that does this. And so, you know, that is how AWS, it's, it's grown organically. Amazon, the retail business has grown organically too, in large part, as uh, we were adding new categories, we found out what customers were searching for and we didn't have. So that told us what to go get next. And that that is how, how we grew. So, you know, being, it's not customer focused, it's really customer obsessed. And there is a difference between the two. And if you're customer obsessed, then you're, you always have, your metrics are gonna measure what exactly the customer experience was yesterday or today, or even right now, for um, whatever, you know, it, for a web service or for how many deliveries did we miss by how, and by how many minutes did we miss a promise? And then how do we go back and fix that? You know, there are, there are meetings and teams who look at that type of metric every day because we at Amazon, we obsess over the customer experience. And the last thing I would add is that Jeff has always said that um, Amazon has a conviction, unshakable conviction, which means you're not going to convince Jeff to change on this one, <laughs> that the long-term interests of shareholders are, are, are completely aligned with the long-term interests of customers. And so if you serve your customers well, the shareholders are going to get their due too. It may take a little, a, a little bit longer, a little bit longer than a quarterly report on what analysts and pundits really want Amazon to do. But um, that is something you will not. Amazon is not going to deviate from now or or in the future. Great point, thank Mike. You, thank you on that. I'm going to just remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action Business Radio. Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Yusim. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And we're talking with our two guests today, Bill Carr and Colin Breyer, authors of Working Backwards, Secrets from Inside Amazon. And I'm just gonna say a word or two more about the two of you with a question at the far end. Colin, I seen that you joined Amazon in 1998. You spent uh, quite a bit of time actually as the chief of staff for Jeff Bezos, uh, sometimes known as Jeff's shadow, I see. Uh, Bill, you joined in 1999 and spent more than 15 years there, which means just with those early numbers, you've pretty much seen it from the get-go because if I recall correctly, I think Amazon got going in 1994 or 1995. So you've seen one of the um, close-in, hands-on, you've, you've seen one of the great growth stories of the modern era, which brings me then to the last chapter in the book, which is the most remarkable growth, I think, of all the things that you've grown is AWS. So Amazon Web Services now a huge source of income, uh, dramatically growing over the last uh, few years. And Colin, maybe you can start just walking us through the origin story on AWS. It came up from heaven, it came out of the head of a god, or it started more mundanely on the floor. Well, it, it came from several different directions, quite honestly. So we had realized that there was a new and better way to start building and deploying software. And there were several groups within Amazon who were working with web services, is, um, what XML and web services is what they were called at the time. The term cloud computing hadn't been invented yet. But we found out that we could actually build and deploy services on Amazon.com or work for partners in, in a much 
faster way than, than we had before. And while it wasn't our core business, it had to be a core competency of ours. You know, at, at Amazon, we were building um, software and technology that was at or beyond the tolerances of most commercial software out there. So we had to invent just out of necessity. And, uh, and, and so what, what Jeff had seen was that this, is, this could be something big. We didn't know how big, but um, he saw one, we, one thing we did is we released Amazon's catalog and some e-commerce functionality out into the wild. And I went over to Jeff's office and showed him, it was about a dozen different uh, developers who took that, uh, those web services, and they did some pretty amazing things that we hadn't even thought of. And it, you know, that was one of the turning points where Jeff said, this is something that doesn't come along very often. It's different and special and it's worthy of attention. And uh, Andy was transitioning out of Jeff's technical advisor role. Andy could have taken any job in the company he wanted after that. He could have gone and run one of Amazon's largest businesses. Instead, Andy chose that, recognized that there's this trend and he went around and pulled people in different way, which ways we were using web services and then proposed to Jeff that we should go start a web services team focused exclusively on a software developer who is our customer. So it was a brand new customer set for us. We had third-party sellers and, and buyers on, on the websites for our two primary customers. And then what happened, what was interesting about that is it wasn't let's launch something quickly and get it out there. We wrote documents for about two years. And, and because we weren't even sure what we were creating and, uh, and there was a journey to discover who was the customer, what were the fundamental products we were offering. And the first two major ones were storage and compute. It took a while to get there. It was you know, peeling a layer after layer of the onion until you got to the core kernel of truth of what we were gonna build. And then we had also had to figure out how to build it at scale because what we were going to build and deploy would be many times the size of what we had done just to build amazon.com. Uh, so a couple notable things about that. We didn't launch something, throw it over the fence and, and learn because that was we'd have a deep relationship with these corporate customers. And you can't say run your operations on top of our uh, infrastructure while we learn and fix bugs. So that wasn't something we wanted to do. We wanted to get it right when it came out there for the, the first time. So those were a couple, I would say, of noteworthy things of what we did and didn't do at that time. There was some luck involved too. You know, if you were to talk back up to 2003 timeframe, you know, web services, people were talking about it and you said, who's gonna um, be move into that space? Amazon probably would not have been on that top five list. It would have been someone like an IBM, a Microsoft, an Oracle, um, uh, you know, even a Google, but uh, Amazon really just focused on, you know, what can we do well with this new customer set and launch, you know, a couple simple um, products and then grow from there. Colin, great. Bill, what would you add to that? The, the, um, the remarkable thing that, that um, you know, people should take away from, one of the remarkable things people should take away from the AWS are two things. First of all, the fact that um, what did AWS have to do with being an e-commerce retailer? So within, even with inside Amazon and certainly uh, outside, people question like, what? You guys are an e-commerce company. You're good at selling books and DVD players. Like, what would you possibly know about um, serving other business customers with, with this nascent category of cloud computing? So people, a lot of people thought it was a bad idea. And, and 
in general, having seen a lot of big ideas come to life, the naysayers definitely outweigh the supporters. And you'd be surprised that even inside your own company, there are a lot of naysayers. Um, and so that Amazon, but Amazon wasn't held back by the fact that they weren't known in this area. They decided they could go uh, acquire and develop the skills to be successful. The other notable thing is instead of rush, rush, rushing to get this out the door, there was an incredibly methodical and um, you know more than 18 month approach to deciding exactly what is the customer problem we're trying to solve and what is the right solution before the team started building. And Jeff frequently was, and I encountered the same thing in, in, in many of the products I worked on where Jeff was frequently forcing us to slow down to get to speed up. A lot of people confuse the idea of, of shipping something, writing code, getting out the door with getting them to their destination faster. Mm -hmm. And this case study of the way that Amazon was so methodical in figuring out what to go build before they started building it, and then created a company that, that became the fastest company in the history of business to achieve 10 billion in revenue is the poster child for <laughs> go slow to go fast. Yep. And jump in. Thank you. And let me preface my question by saying the beauty of having me as co-host is I ask the most basic, ordinary pedestrian questions. Okay. So that's the least, the least educated on this topic in the group. So what I'm hearing you say is that Amazon made a decision in the case of cloud computing. Am I hearing this right? To move from what um, entrepreneurs call move from B to C to B to B. <laughs> so rather business to customer, business to business. All right, and Mike up front had this wonderful stat that I jotted down because it was so impressive. 1.7 trillion in market cap. Do you know now what percentage of the business of Amazon's business is B to B as opposed to B to C? Well, I don't have the exact numbers on that. And in fact, by the way, it's not the only B2B business they have because uh, a substantial right. part of the business is the Amazon marketplace business, which really has two components, the marketplace itself, and a second component, which is called fulfillment by Amazon that enables all these marketplace sellers to actually use Amazon as its logistics engine for picking, packing, and shipping uh, their products to customers. Um, but uh, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't actually, I couldn't give you the exact stats mm -hmm. and it's also hard to break it out because the dollar revenue and unit volume from the retail piece is so large compared to the AWS piece, but the AWS piece is much more profitable, by the way, than the e-commerce piece. So it's, it's sort of hard to, 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 to make that you know, clear analysis, but uh, I think it would be fair to say that um, if you looked at just the value of if you combined all of Amazon's B2B businesses and then set aside to all of Amazon's B2C businesses, they, they would probably have you know comparable value. Okay, Bill, thank you for that. And now you said a little earlier that uh, Amazon in making this decision, Amazon had to go fast to go slow. And Colin, I'm gonna come over to you because you were chief of staff. Am I, am I correct in that? Yes. So you, you, I'm interested in hearing from you about how you guided decision making. What happened with web services at that time? It was Andy, Jesse, and you know, relatively small team, a dozen or so people working on different products and 
Andy and one or two of the people with, you know, the storage people or uh, compute would meet with Jeff and me in, in a small conference room and we'd actually review a six page narrative um, and often with the press release and we were still developing the working backwards process at this time, mm -hmm. but often with the press release and an FAQ mm -hmm. and those were the FAQs were where we spent a bunch of time um, because those were the tough questions that we had to solve. So we would answer questions mm -hmm. like, how is this going to scale? If you know, here we're going to mm -hmm. launch it, and how is it going to be a hundred times bigger than it is now? And what will be the cost and performance characteristics that will change? That's a hard problem, especially when you're inventing someone new, something new, and it's running. It would run at um, throughput levels well beyond what Amazon.com, one of the largest sites on the web, was running at. Um, how are you going to charge for this? You know, we talked about a couple of different ideas, whether it's a subscription-based storage thing, you pay X dollars. And that was a, a healthy discussion. And we ended up saying a cost plus model was the best way to go because that encourages the customers, the developers to use the resources wisely as, as Amazon. And then we could also take those um, the, you know, the savings, if it's a cost plus, we figure out how to do it cheaper. We had Moore's Law, which was some nice tailwinds. We could pass that, those savings back on to, to customers. So that, you know, it wasn't going to, it was going to, subscription was one of the first ideas that came up. So we would uh, talk about ideas like that. And it took many, many months to figure out uh, what we were going to offer. And I could, you know, there's same things about the compute. We, were, we initially had to roll out thousands of machines just to keep Amazon running. And we thought at first it was, well, provisioning, rolling out machines is what we called it, but it was something more fundamental. It was CPU cycles, compute CPU cycles is what people were buying. So then we had to build a whole metering system around that in, in a way to, it wasn't the machine, it was the compute cycle was the, the core body of work. So that that's those are some examples of things that you don't know that going in there, yeah. but if you launched something and said, well, we'll see how that works, it's really hard to go back and change <laughs> that, especially when you have a hundred equivalent Amazon, uh, you know, dot coms running on your service to you know rip out the plumbing and change it while while it's going. So those were some of the things we did, and you know, if you look at Jeff's calendar back in two thousand three to two thousand five. I'd say you know, a good half of it were on businesses that had a revenue of zero. Um, digital, which is moving into Kindle, um, you know, music, uh, books, and videos, and then web services, because Jeff saw that those were two very large opportunities for different reasons. One, the digital one, that was going to cannibalize 77% of our business, which was shipping physical books, CDs, and DVDs, and VHS tapes, believe it or not, back then. Um, so we had to figure out a way to go digital. With AWS, it was a new thing that we were exploring, but Jeff put just as much energy into both of those because those are large markets and virtually unconstrained because how large they are, that's a virtually unconstrained market. So those that's we read documents and got feedback and I had software engineers come up to me and say, hey, can you tell Jeff, we actually get paid to write software code, not to write documents. And you know, we had to explain this process because that know we're, we're trying to figure out what we want to write and launch first. So that Jeff calls himself the chief slowdown officer. And that was, uh, uh, you know, sometimes, and that was a good example of what we were doing. I'm also interested in the use of narrative and narrative, for example, as opposed to PowerPoint slide decks, which are ubiquitous. So can you talk a little bit about that? We use both all the time in academia. So that's uh, why I asked this question. 
Yes. So at Amazon, Amazon uses narratives. And really what that means is it's, it's for an hour meeting, it's a six page memo and to, to get across information. And it's, it started in June of 2004. You know, we just like most every other company on the planet at that time used slides and typically PowerPoint to cover issues. And as our business was getting more complex and the stakes were getting higher, we realized, and the, the, we weren't making decisions as fast or at the high enough quality that we wanted to. And um, Jeff had been reading some essays from uh, Edward Tufte, who was a professor mm -hmm. at Yale. Um, Cognitive Style of PowerPoint was one of the essays that we had read, uh, you know, a couple months before. And so, you know, just in the back of our minds, we were trying. We always tried to focus on how can we get better. And Amazon's growing a lot. What's it going to look like when we're ten times the size we are now? And we realized that our decision making process was flawed. It wasn't the teams or the issues. It was the tool that we were using. And so, Jeff, one um, Wednesday in June two thousand four. We had um, said, let's stop using PowerPoint at my management team meetings and we're going to switch to narratives. And mm -hmm. that's kind of a rip the bandaid uh, approach. And, uh, and the reason why we switched at that time was uh, just to essentially to make better decisions. And where narratives really shine over slides is that the one thing is it forces the writer or the writing team, it's often more than one person that's as the author of the document, to really get clarity of thought on what they want to uh, per, you know, propose to an audience. And it's easy to throw a bunch of slides together and kind of chat about th you know, things that are going on. The, you know, the second thing that we found out narratives did is they removed bias um, and the best ideas floated to the top. And one example of bias is presentation bias. You can have a charismatic person with a bad idea or a so-so idea that can convince a, a group of people to make the wrong decision. And, and the flip side is you can have you know, a shy engineer who doesn't really like getting in front of a, a group of people who may have a great idea, but everyone's just sitting there saying, when is this meeting gonna end? It's so boring, but the idea itself could be great. Narratives remove that because at the end of the day, Customers don't care if it was a fun meeting or a boring meeting. They care that the right decision got made and a product got developed that is useful for their lives. Um, and another benefit to narratives we found is you get about 10 times as much information per the same unit of time. So mm. pixel density can come slides compared to things like words and sentences and paragraphs, which by the way, aren't really innovations. You know, in some steps, we are going back to the way ideas used to be communicated um, people uh, read faster than they than they uh, talk, so you can you know. And so all in, it's about ten times as much information comes through, and really, what that happens what, what, when you combine all of that for the same hour meeting, you get ten times as much information, and you're uh, and you can have a higher quality discussion and make a better decision. Mm -hmm. And you know, the last thing I'll add is you know we talk about reversible decisions. This was it was a well thought out, but it was a decisive decision, but it was, you know, we had there was some thought before it, but if it didn't work in a couple months, we would have just gone back to slides, you know? So it, it while it was a big change at the time, we, it was reversible, but Amazon didn't do that. And, you know, Jeff has called it one of the best moves that Amazon has made. Yeah. And people who aren't doing that are, are at a disadvantage because they're making decisions with about 10 times less information than, than, than someone else. Yeah. Maybe, Mike, if I could, just one follow-up. Uh, Colin, how long were those narratives typically? Was there a, 
uh, recommended length? It, we settled in on six pages for an hour meeting. So it takes about three minutes to read a page. And you know, so you have 18 to 20 minutes of reading and then 40 minutes of discussion. So an Amazon meeting you walk into, it's it's atypical and it's downright bizarre for someone who's not prepared or who's it's their first meeting at Amazon, mm -hmm. where you know there'll be the chit chat and then everything goes, everyone goes silent, you know, either through Zoom or if they're in the conference room mm -hmm. and everyone's reading and commenting, you know, writing their comments either in on you know remotely or on paper, you know, either one works and for 20 minutes, and then you have 40 minutes of real, everyone's up to speed, 40 minutes of high quality discussion, and then you leave with a decision, uh, you know, a high quality decision. Oh, and if I may just say, Mike, I know you'll really appreciate that. What's so beautiful about that is each person has an opportunity to collect, you know, collect their own thoughts, think, and then discuss. So we don't have uh, that, um, that influence that if I'm sitting next to someone who's more senior than I am and he says this, then I'm gonna go side slide right up next to him. You get more independent thought, more diverse thought and the opportunity for better decision-making. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mike. I would. Oh, please, Bill, chime in. No, go ahead. I would just add add to that thought that you have to remember that then it, it democratizes the, the input you can get instead of having limited mm -hmm. airtime for the most important people in the room using you know, the networked Google documents or Word where everyone's comments are in there. It doesn't matter what level you are, your comment appears alongside everyone else's. And furthermore, even if it's not discussed, there's a, it, it's documented and captured in that memo, in that discussion, and so it can be referred back to later. Yeah, thank you, Bill, that's okay. great. Mike. Bill, I'm gonna keep you in the spotlight for a couple more minutes. And going back to a question I asked Anne at the start of our program, Let's say the now almost next CEO, he's got a few months to go before Andy Jassy takes office, calls you, he said he's read in your book, uh, this great chapter with the 14 principles of Amazon's leadership. And he says, you know, I'm gonna be leading in a different era. It's similar to, but it is different from what happened when you all began in 1995. And Andy says, what's principle number 15? What's not on there that he's going to need himself to lead Amazon into the future? Bill, what do you think? Boy, that's a boy. You've asked me a tough one there. Uh, um, that's Mike. So Bill. The first comment I'll make. <laughs> the first comment I'll make is that um, uh, the beauty is that actually, when inside Amazon, when those principles are passed around on a piece of paper, it said it often said something to the effect of, "Here are fourteen leadership principles." unless you know ones that are better, which meant there was always an open invitation that this is a work in progress. And if you can come up with an additional principle or a modification of one of these principles, please feel free to come forward and contribute. Uh, the bar, of course, was extremely high. And so these edits uh, happened relatively infrequently, which is a sign that it was a high quality document and, and well-thought-out principles. Um, but the question is, so what's the 15th? Um, I haven't thought of how I would capture this, but I would just I would put it this way. Um, one of the most remarkable things about the company is the fact that they've been able to uh, continue to invent and simplify, that it's a, an innovative, inventive company, even mm -hmm. when it's it's been at scale of having, you know, uh, when, when we were starting to down that path in 2004 on AWS and digital, we had five billion dollars in sales. So that's a pretty big company. Uh, and then uh, many more, more inventions occurred 
in the you know 2010s when we had you know tens of billions of dollars of sales, which is still a really big company. The the real question and test from from my point of view is now Amazon is approaching a half a trillion dollars in revenue. And when you think about that and think about, okay, well, what's the new business that they could launch that will actually add to their top line? So uh, back in those early days when we would launch a business to say, yes, this business has the potential in the next uh, three to five years to become, you know, 500 million in revenue or maybe 2 billion in revenue. Those are those were great numbers and those are big numbers. And, and today in the startup community, anyone would be very excited if they could develop a new business with a billion dollars in revenue. But if you think about Amazon approaching a half trillion, a new business contributing 1 billion doesn't even move the needle for their um, for their revenue or their financials. So I think uh, Andy is inheriting a, a challenge that frankly has never been um, tackled before because uh, Amazon's size and scale is so unprecedented, which is how do you maintain that culture of invention and fostering and, and understanding the care and feeding required to grow a new business with that scale? Now, the good news is Andy himself understands what's involved very, very well because he is uh, the only person inside that company that that led the development from zero to 10 billion of a whole new product category. And so he knows how what that looks like and how difficult that is. And those of us who've also done that kind of work understand the special nurture and skills required to nurture a new business idea. Um, but that, uh, but there still are institutional challenges, the institutional no and resistance to the new. I experienced that even when we were a $5 billion revenue company. And so one can imagine what that looks like when you're at, um, you know, 500 billion. Yeah. So Bill, I'm going to hold, have you actually hold that thought. I'm going to come back on that as soon as we remind everybody that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And our guests are, again, Colin Breyer and Bill Carr, authors of the new book, Working Backwards. And a quick final question from me to Bill and then over to Colin and then get Ann back in here too. Uh, if there's one leadership principle of the 14, I love the idea of add your own. That could be number 15, number 16. Are there a couple, or is there one you would retire? Amazon's in a new era, and maybe one or two of those not recommended for use. Well, what do you think? Bill, you want to take a stab at that one? And I'll say in advance, I know it's a tough question. So there it is. Geez, I'm gonna to have to like uh, pull out the list, but uh, you, you're asking the toughest. I'm hoping you, you let Colin try to answer this one first. Um, you know, the short answer is that um, uh, I I could not come up with with uh, with one. I could I could tell you what I think is the the one that if I had to if you had to make me pick one, which one would you keep? But kicking one off, I don't think there's one to remove that. Um, but you need to remove because of the size and scale of where the company is today. I think right. these leadership principles are applicable and appropriate, whether the company was a $5 billion company or a $500 billion company. Totally. And Bill, I guess my words on that, we want to be a complete leader. One feature, one factor, one move won't do it. We need a bunch and maybe we need 15 and counting. 
Colin, what's your quick thought on this? And then we're going to hand the baton over to Anne. Well, if I were to add the, the 15th one, I think Amazon occupies a fundamentally different place in society than it did uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So it would be something that a leadership principle that recognizes that fact and reminds people day in and day out that what Amazon does has the potential to impact hundreds of millions or even billions of people. So to keep that in mind, I don't know the exact words for that, but I would say that is a fun, you know, I think a fundamental change. And um, in terms of what to pull out, these leadership principles are not 14 independent ones, they all work together. So, you know, in, invent yep. and simplify and learn and be curious work together. So if you pull one out, it, 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 it changes some of the other ones too. So I wouldn't pull out, I would add 15, I wouldn't. And, it, and by the way, when Amazon first released them, there were 10 in 2005. Great. So it, it has, Amazon has evolved over time. Great. Colin, thank you on that. And I just want to remind listeners that in about six minutes, we're going to do a summing up. So be thinking about the main point you'd like to hang, hang on to. In the meantime, Anne, uh, uh, one final question here. Okay. And Colin, I think you might have anticipated mine. You know, Amazon is enormously, enormously impressive as an organization. And uh, organizations uh, are born, organizations live, organizations die. What Achilles heel could you imagine Amazon having? So Jeff is uh, the building where his office was, it's, it's day one, and he has been um, really fighting to keep it the company at day one, which means that there's so much more in front of people and, and you have people not rest on their laurels. So I think that as long as you keep uh, uh, aware of that and then also being willing and, and, and sometimes to, to being decisive to cannibalize yourself, that is very important mm -hmm. because the world will change and if you don't change with it, th that those are the the organizations that become less and less relevant. So you know, the, I think keeping that uh, alive and top of mind that what worked today may may not work in 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 the future. And you know, digital is a great example. Yeah, Mike, do I have time for one other one more? You do. All right, thank you, Mike. Now Jeff will be moving into the you know into the chairman of the board. Just knowing how he has carried himself as CEO, what would you? How would you expect that he will fulfill that role? How how do you see his leadership in that role? Colin, I'll start with you, and then Bill, if time, I'd love to hear from you. Well, he's said stated that he is still going to work on new initiatives and and uh, what the CFO Brian Olsofsky said work on one way door decisions, which means irreversible ones. Once you make that decision, it's hard and expensive to go back, and that's essentially what Jeff has been doing. And you know, for 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 a while now, he's been focusing on new initiatives that don't necessarily see the light of day. There are seeds that are going to be planted that you won't know and, and, and for several years. So in that respect, he's he's got a pretty good knack for what are the biggest opportunity, long-term opportunities for the comp company. So I, I don't I don't see that changing much. Okay. Bill, thoughts? I don't have much to add yet. He, um, what most people don't understand is that Jeff hasn't doesn't behave like a normal CEO. Normal CEOs spend the majority of their time on their existing 
the large revenue generating business that they've got and managing the ins and outs of that. Jeff, back in two, by 2004, Jeff had already assembled such a talented leadership team that he had delegated the farm, the majority of the day-to-day -day management of then the e-commerce business. Um, and over the many, you know, past several years, of course, he's had Andy Jassy in the role of delegated managing the AWS business. And so those people, those leaders you have, they, they can manage a day-to-day -day business. Jeff has been focused on how do I, uh, he's been focused on the future. As he said, I live in the future. And so he's been focused on new initiatives for the company, some that don't even exist and new product ideas. And so this is really a continuation of that with obviously some formal changes, in, uh, of course, in terms of who's reporting to whom and some things that he will not be involved in at all that he would have been before. Yeah, all right. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you on that. Uh, thank you, Colin, as well. And now the after action review. And just to remind all of us uh, and myself and you included, the idea here is at the end of a show or the end of a Broadway production, the end of a, a book you've read, or in this case, the end of a great discussion we've had, really helpful to reflect on one or two points we'd really like to hang on to, uh, kind of top of mind. There are many points, but uh, a good way to sum it up is to get the top one or two. So I'm gonna begin with uh, Colin, if you can help us what we really ought to remember from the previous 50 minutes of our dialogue and more broadly the book, what would you single out one or two main points for future reference? The first thing I would say is if you observe Amazon doing something and you're scratching your head and saying, why did they do it? Just remember that the conviction that Amazon, unshakable conviction Amazon has, that the long-term interests of customers are perfectly aligned with the long-term interests of shareholders. So, you know, that will explain a lot of things that don't make sense, for, you know, at, at first blush. Um, the, the second thing is, uh, you know, some people confuse long-term thinking that it takes you longer to get to where you want to, to go. And um, with Amazon, that that's, you know, two data points aren't the case. It's the fastest company to $100 billion. AWS got to from zero to $10 billion faster than Amazon did. That was with long-term thinking because Amazon doesn't confuse speed with velocity. Then the difference is velocity has a directional component and so, and the directional component and the North Star for Amazon is customer obsession. So those would be two things. Oh, the third one is easy. Try narratives if you haven't. It's, it's an easy try. If it doesn't work for you, go back. But um, most everyone who's tried it making decisions they, that we've seen, they found it hard to go back to PowerPoint for those types of decisions. That's right, Colin. Good summary. Bill, how about you? Yeah, so my summary is that, um, you know, Everyone knows about the uh, you know world world beating or or worldwide popular products and services that Jeff and Amazon have built, like AWS and the Amazon Echo. But what people don't realize is that Jeff's legacy extends well beyond those, and that even in the early days he was focused on how to make Amazon an enduring company. And to achieve this, Jeff built a new and now proven way to to manage. Uh, and that's enabled the company to thrive for the past two decades. He basically, he built an invention machine and that that's a set of scalable uh, principles and processes that you can repeat. And, you know, these are things that think of, um, you know, these are the same sort of challenges that all businesses and CEOs face. 
And so, uh, you know, leaders should, should look and study and learn from Jeff and what, and this invention machine they've created. And anyone can learn from what he's built and apply these principles and processes to their own company. Excellent. And very good. Well, I'm going to build on that just really briefly and go back to your title, working backwards. At first blush, it sounds as though we're working backwards from right here and looking back. But no, in fact, we're working backwards from a point in the future. <laughs> and in order to work backwards from the point in the future, we have to be ready to shed something that is right now and maybe even profitable for us at this moment. So I think that's a really important point. It's not just cut your losses. It may be cut your profits. Awesome. So briefly, here's my, uh, I guess, two thoughts. Um, one is come up with your own leadership principles. So <laughs> we've got 14 in the book, but as one of our guests has said, you know, figure it out. If they don't work for you, try a couple others. Part of our obligation is to evolve that and make it work in our own world. And I think uh, the final point goes way back to where we began, and that is just look at yourself from the outside in. What do people want? Or if we're going to deliver it to them, it's going to be best if we know what they do really want and when, when they want it. Colin and Bill, thank you for joining us. I think our listeners are going to know where to buy your book if they <laughs> already have it's, a yes. copy of Working Backwards. But for learning more about your company, Working Backwards, what's your guidance? Uh, you can visit our website, www.workingbackwards.com. Awesome. Colin, a final thought from you? Um, we're just excited to, to uh, release this invention machine to the world and, 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 and tell people about it. I think it helps organizations large and small. So, and, uh, so it's, it's a new way to build a company. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've got a question about today's show, you know where we are business radio at SiriusXM.com. And also, of course, we are on Twitter. Want to thank our two really interesting guests today, Colin Breyer and Bill Carr. And of course, our excellent producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tuke. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And you've been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius Channel 132. See you next week. Thanks. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.